in to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Ten weeks ago, we began a series of studies on this section of God's Word. And we come today to verses 15 through 19. Verses 15 through 19. And of course the subject is the same subject which it has been for the last 10 weeks. That is the Lord's intercessory prayer. It is not referred to so much as the model prayer which Christ taught his disciples how to pray but the intercessory prayer that he prayed before going to Gethsemane and from Gethsemane into Calvary and the suffering he endured there. So in verses 15 through 19, John chapter 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's verse 17. It just stands out and blinks off and on. It's such a very important thing. It is preceded by two verses, beginning with verse 15, where Christ says, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word, is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Our study last Sunday was with verses 13 through 14. And uh, verse 13, he says, and begins that verse by saying, And now come I to thee. The Son is speaking to the Heavenly Father. And now come I to thee, which implies his purpose of coming and the fulfillment of it. He was with the Father in eternity past. Jesus Christ did not have his beginning in a Bethlehem manger scene. He's always been the Son of God. There's always been Father. There's always been Son. And there's always been the Holy Spirit. And in this prayer, Christ is praying to His Heavenly Father, interceding for His disciples. And so I come to Thee. He was with the Father in eternity past. He was in this world for 33 years. Just a short time indeed. And then he left this world and ascended to go back into heaven to be at the Father's right hand where he has been for the last 2,000 years making intercession for his people on this earth. In verses 11 and 12, it states that believers are in this world. Now, we know that unbelievers are in this world, but believers also are in this world. Verse number 11, if you notice and are following along in the scriptures, these things stand out. In verse number 11, Christ says, these are in the world. He's talking about his apostles, and he's talking about believers up to that particular point, immediate believers. They're in the world. 
And in verse number 12, he says, I was with them in the world. In verses 14 and 16, he stresses that believers are not of this world. Verse 14, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And it is almost like, in case you didn't get that, read verse number 16 and you have the same thing said again. These are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We're dealing with the second division of this prayer of our Lord Jesus, in which Christ is praying for his apostles. But not only his apostles, but for other believers as well. You remember, there were more believers than just 12 men at Christ's early ministry as it began. At one point, he sends out 70 and tells them where to go and what to do and how to preach and so forth. So these immediate disciples and the apostles who lived at that time become the object in this prayer of his prayer of intercession. In division number one, Christ prays for himself, verses one through eight. When you read the 17th of John, you see that stands out. He begins by talking about the glory that he had with the Father and that that glory would be restored in verses 1 through 8. In division number 2, Christ prays for his apostles and the immediate disciples in verses 9 through 19. What did he pray for? He prays for the believer's security in verses 11 through 12. And I don't have the time to reiterate that uh, because we have a new material we want to share with you this morning. But he prays for the believer's security in verses 11 and 12. Second of all, he prays for the believer's joy in verse number 13, that they may have my joy. And number three, he prays for the believer's sanctification in verses 15 through 19. That's the passage we just read for you a moment ago. Now it's in this third area. We wish to deal in this study this morning, namely that of sanctification as it results and as it relates to the believer. The meaning of sanctification. Now, we have a lot of different opinions about that today, and some of them uh, are pretty close to Scripture Some of them are so totally ridiculous that once you are saved, you've got to have a second blessing down the road somewhere or another. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and you give evidence of that by speaking in tongues and you get sanctified. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. Let's look at this sanctification. The Greek word is hagiazo. Hagiozo, it means to set apart for God's holiness. That's a basic definition of sanctify or sanctification. To set apart for God's holiness. Let me give you a couple of examples of sanctification. Number one is the rod of Moses. 
take a moment to look over to Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared to thee. Moses is arguing with the Lord. Now, no use of me going, Moses is saying, because if I go, they're not going to believe me. They'll say that I'm just making this up. But the Lord gave him a reason for it. In verse 2, the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. What is that in thine hand? It's a rod. Actually, it was a shepherd's staff. You will remember that Moses had gotten quite a bit of experience being a shepherd when he worked for his father-in-law. A shepherd's staff. And it was set apart by God to demonstrate God's holiness. It was not a normal staff. If you think it was, read on. It was a sanctified staff set apart by God to reveal His holiness. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5 of that fourth chapter of Exodus. He said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent. Now, I've had some preachers to say, well, now that doesn't really mean that that, that, that rod turned into a serpent. Moses thought it did. Read on. Moses fled from before. He's through that staff business. It's over with. But the Lord said unto him, Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. How strong is your faith? Huh? (laughs) And he put forth his hand and caught it and became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. Look at verse number 17 of the same chapter in Exodus. The Bible says, Thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. Look at verses 19 through 21. Same book, same chapter. The Lord said unto Moses in Midian, Go return unto Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. Moses took his wife, his sons, set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. But notice carefully, Moses took the rod of God in his hand. He was going to face the enemy, and he took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return unto Egypt, see that thou do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. And you know the many judgments that God put on Pharaoh, but he put them on Pharaoh through the rod in Moses' hand. And so on, and so on it goes there. Now notice in the 14th chapter of Exodus, The 14th chapter of Exodus. Verses 13 through 16. When Moses got the children of Israel to border line with the Red Sea, Pharaoh 
and his armies were hot on their heels and it put fear in the hearts of the people and they begin to blame Moses for it. Verse 13, Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you this day. For the Egyptians who you've seen today, you'll see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you. You hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward, but lift up thy rod, and stretch it out over hand and over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then in verse number 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all the night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. You see why I called it the sanctified rod. It was set apart by God not to herd sheep. It was set apart by God to destroy Pharaoh. It wasn't an ordinary rod. It was not an ordinary shepherd's staff. It was set apart by God for a certain duty. A second illustration I hope may be of help to you in this. Our church auditorium is sanctified. Our church, or we're not, we, do, we don't have a synagogue here. We don't have a sanctuary here. We have an auditorium. But our auditorium is called the worship center of our church. The writing is on the outside of those doors back there. Why is that so? Because we set apart this room to worship God. And there's not another room in our church like it. We have other rooms for other purposes. But when you come... In here, you come in here to worship the Lord. Not to have a good time, but to worship the Lord. That's the reason we discourage eating in the auditorium. We don't come in here to eat. We come in here to worship the Lord. We set it apart for that reason. Now, this piano over here is a sanctified piano. And this dear lady is sanctified in that she's used by God to play that piano in assisting our worship unto the Lord. Say, so, well, we'll get somebody in here to raise and matazz it up, you know, and get down, papa, 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 papa. No, that's, we're not about that. We come in here to worship the Lord. If you ever see that, it's a meaning of sanctified. Sanctified. There are two divisions of sanctification. Number one, there is positional sanctification. What do you mean by positional sanctification? When God saves you, He sanctifies you. He sets you apart from any and everything else you've ever been or done for His honor and for His glory and to do His will. Positional sanctification now, this is where we need to really pay attention. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse number 6. There in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse number 6. This occurs at conversion. God separates us from the world of darkness and calls us unto his glorious light. While you're turning there, let me read verse 14 of our text. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Have you ever wondered why the world hates the church? Because we ain't of them. And they're not of us. There's a marked division between the world and the church. Sanctification. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, what does Ephesians 2, 6 have to do with positional sanctification? Did you know it says that God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ? Where Christ sits, we sit. When Christ died, you died. When Christ arose from the dead, you arose from the dead. We no longer walk as dead men. We walk as resurrected believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has set us apart positionally in Jesus Christ. God separates us from the world of darkness and calls us unto his glorious light. And then the second part of sanctification, in addition to being positional sanctification, there is practical sanctification. Sometimes it's called progressive sanctification. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should, what? Walk in them. Another verse that adds support to this is Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been born again by the Holy Spirit of God and we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This occurs in the believer as he yields to the holy will of God for his life. Positionally, it's already happened. But practically, it is being happened. It is happening every day of our lives. Practical sanctification. Now, here here goes a rabbit. Watch those rabbits. Not everybody believes that. There's a group of people today, and they are called believers, and I have no route to deny or reason to deny that they are not believers. I think they're wrong. They do not believe in practical sanctification. They believe you get it all when the Lord saved you at conversion. That you'll never be more sanctified than you are right now. When the moment Christ saved you, he sanctified you completely. I had one such person in my pulpit 
not here, but in another church before we ever moved here who believed that. And he was teaching this very thing, that believers don't grow in sanctification. They're already completely sanctified. And I thought, that blind idiot. I mean, where you live, mister, believers have problems just like everybody else has problems. And we have to learn to grow and develop in grace. And so when the service was over with, I said, let's go out in the car. We need to have a little talk. And we got out of the car. And when I began to speak to him about progressive sanctification, he said, well, I believe that believers need to grow in grace. I said, call it whatever you want to. That's progressive sanctification. We ought to be getting better. Should we not? We ought to be getting being more faithful to the things that God has called us to do. And so you have positional sanctification, and he's praying for that. And what is the reason for it? Look at verse number 15 of our text. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Now, that's the King James translation. I think it's the best translation that has ever come across. I do not, I do not hold any other translation a superior to the King James. But nonetheless, notice there's a period there. Thou shouldst keep them from the evil. The implication is the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. In Matthew 13, 19, it even uses the term the wicked one. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one. The wicked one is the evil one and catcheth away that which was sown in the heart. Now then, we're to be kept from the evil one. How are believers kept from the evil one? We'll not take the time to try to prove there's a devil. He's quite obviously real. How are believers kept from the evil one? I gave this to you last Sunday. I want to give it to you And I'll give you the reference. You look it up. I don't have the time to go into it. Number one, believers are kept from the the evil one by the Holy Spirit who dwells within. Whenever the Lord saved you, my dear friends, we talk in terms about what Jesus came into my heart. Really, really what happened is the Holy Spirit came into your life because Jesus Christ is at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. And you are not working on getting the Holy Spirit. If you've been saved by God's grace, you already have the Holy Spirit. If a man doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he is none of his. You can't belong to the Lord without having the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes us aware of His presence, does He not? Do something you ought not to do, and you feel bad about it. You say, well, my conscience is bothering me. No, the Holy Spirit's bothering you. That's the reason He said, quench not the Holy Spirit. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because believers are kept from the evil one by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Second of all, by the interceding of the Savior. 
in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Also, believers are kept from the evil one by the provision of the armor mentioned in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Number four, believers are kept from the holy, from the evil one by fellowshipping in the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. God has put apostles in the church. He's put evangelists in the church. He's put teachers in the church. And when you get into that kind of environment, you have a deterrent against doing evil and an encouragement to do right. And then, of course, the fifth one is the Word of God. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Let's quick, quickly look at verse number 16. The Lord Jesus, speaking of his apostles and those immediate believers, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Please notice he says in verse 16, I am not of the world. Jesus Christ was never of the world. Never was. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, For such an high priest became us, speaking of our Savior, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. If he was separate from sinners, he was sanctified, set apart. That's why he was separate from sinners. In John eight twenty three, he said and directed this statement to unbelievers, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Though Jesus, though the Lord Jesus was the friend of sinners, he was not their companion. He did not participate in their ungodliness. He did not stoop to their morals to reach them. He was never their running buddy. Not with the world. I saw many years ago a t-shirt and inscribed on that t-shirt was Jesus is my homeboy. I beg your pardon. Hollywood stars are spreading that message in many different ways today. Just Jesus is one of the boys. Just believe on Jesus and everything cool, daddo. You know, and it goes on and on. Jesus said, I am not of the world. And he's not. He's not. It also says they are not of this world. Who could he be talking about? Us. But specifically toward the apostles and those living believers at that time. They are not, I'm not of the world and they are not of the world. Christians have a different standing from those who belong to the world. The world stands in Adam. Or say, well, that's where we came from. No, we came from Christ. The world stands in Adam. We stand in Christ. They're under condemnation. We're accepted in the beloved. 
This is one way in which we're different and stand aloof from the world. It is our standing. It's different from the world. We have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. Let me give you some reasons why this is so. We possess a different nature. If we are Christians, we possess a different nature. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The nature of this world is the flesh. Our nature is of the spirit. We have a fleshly nature until the day we die, even though we've been saved, but we also have a partaking of a divine nature that is at constant battle with that fleshly nature. And one does not work with the other. One works against the other. It's the battle that operates in the believer. We serve a different master. Do we not? We serve a different... God's people do not serve the same master that the world serves. We serve a different master. In Matthew chapter 6, verse number 24, no man can serve two masters. The Lord said that. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know, there is a good illustration of this over in the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, I'll try to make this as brief as I can so I won't jeopardize the rest of the message on it, but it is so very important that you see it. Joshua was led by the people to bring them over into Canaan, and uh, there were those who were still giving some problems, and, and, uh, and that is declared for us in the 24th chapter of the uh, book of Joshua in the Old Testament. You remember Joshua... Uh, is instructing the people what to do and how to do it and so forth and so on. And the people drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord. That's verse 18, chapter 24 of Joshua. Please encircle the little word also. We will also serve the Lord. We will also serve the Lord. No, you won't. No, you won't. You will never also serve the Lord. Why is that so? Because Christ said no man can serve two masters. Huh? And Joshua said unto the people, you cannot serve the Lord. See, you thought I was taking it out on you. Joshua took it on them. Took it out on them. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He'll never forgive your transgressions nor your sins. You'll never be able to worship God also. You worship God and Him alone. There are not many gods, just one. Brother Randy made that clear in the opening reading. We serve a different master. Now I'll rush. 
Number four, we have a different aim. A believer has a different purpose in life than the unbeliever. We have a different aim. In Philippians 3, 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That was his aim. That was his purpose. And he lost his head before it, for it in Nero's court. We have a different aim. The aim of the world is to please self. Isn't that so? When you go and have a meal at a restaurant, do you eat what you ought to eat? Or do you eat what your flesh says, boy, that's good, pack it in? Huh? Now, you can look at most of us and tell we're not starving to death around here. What I'm saying is illustrating this point that we operate sometimes under the influence of the flesh. We know better than to pack it in and to eat things we ought not to eat and to think things into our body. But you see, we have a different aim. The aim of the world is to please self, make me feel good. That's why the churches are half empty today, my dear friend, because some folks decided it'd be a whole lot better for me to sleep in today than to go to church. That's flesh. You say, well, now you're talking about the deacons. It's flesh. Whoever it is. We have a different aim. Yes. We have a different citizenship. We're misfits, if you have not noticed that. The citizenship of the unsaved is this earth. But our citizenship is in heaven and Christians do not fit in this world. If somehow or another we can be content in this world and enjoy this world and really want to stay around in this world for another millennium, it's because we haven't grasped this truth. We have a different citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are just passing through. We're not settling down. We're passing through. Number six, we have a different life. Second Corinthians 5.17 The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And number seven, we have a different destiny. In John fourteen three, the Lord Jesus said to his apostles, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This world is headed for the lake of fire. We're headed for the Father's house. In heaven. Verse number 17 of our text. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Lord Jesus is praying that 
the apostles and living believers at that time would be set apart by the truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is not a book that contains the Word of God, but rather a book that is the Word of God. And the Word of God is the means of our sanctification. And if you neglect the Word of God, you neglect the means for sanctification. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. The question is, how does the Word produce sanctification? How does the Word of God produce sanctification? By reflecting perfection. By reflecting perfection. In James chapter number 1, verses 22 through 25. Be ye doers of the Word, of the Word, And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and forgetteth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man that he was. But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. When we look into the book, that is to the mirror of God's word, when we look into the mirror of God's word, we see not what we think we are, we see what we should be. That's a reason you can become a millionaire by selling cosmetics. If there's something on your face that you don't like being there, you didn't change a thing. You just covered it up. Still there. Tomorrow you got to do the same thing. The Bible reflects the holiness of God and our total sinfulness. The mirror of God's Word does. It is only as we are aware of our sins that we can do anything about them. And this book will make you aware of your sins and my sins. By reflecting perfection. By rebuking sin. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed... Thereto, according to thy word. Did you get that? Look, you, you don't have to go to the doctor. Okay? You'll save yourself some money if you stay away from the doctor. Especially from the pharmacy. Get in the word of God. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to the word. With my whole heart. Now half-hearted believers are defeated believers. Write that down in the margin of your Bible. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin. Against thee. Brother Lester Roloff used to say, 
The more of God's word you hide in your heart, the less you'll sin. And the less of God's word you hide in your heart, the more you're going to sin. That's cornbread theology. By rebuking sin. By rejoicing the heart. In that 119th Psalm, verses 14 through 16. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Have you forgotten it a little bit lately? How much time do you spend in the word of God? I mean really get into it and study it and bathe in it. And if I could use the term walla in it and enjoy the word of God. That's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for you. You can't be sanctified apart from the word of God. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And then by the renewing of the mind. In that 119th Psalm, incidentally, for those of you who like to memorize Scripture, try on 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. You say, well, Brother Cozart, I like that one about Jesus wept. That's my favorite. Yeah, it's pretty nice, isn't it? Psalm 119, verse 97, a couple of pages over in my Bible. The Bible says, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day that through thy commandments thou hast made me wiser than mine enemies for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. He's not bragging about this. He's just simply saying I go and hear some people and they don't teach the word of God therefore they don't teach anything. I know more than my Did you know you can know more than your teachers? Sure, by study and study and study. For thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, the old people, because I keep thy precepts. I've refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words under my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Do you? Do I? We have a right to because we're not of this world. To hate every false way. The only way you do that is by studying the Bible and doing what the Bible says. Because the Bible is the truth that God uses to sanctify us and to set us apart for His service. By renewing the mind. By rewarding the soul. Psalm 19 verse number 11 I love it when David said, let the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, and by revealing spiritual growth. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verses 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. We'll take verse number 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I believe that. And you'll be making the biggest mistake of your life if you doubt it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. Not perfect in the sense of sinlessly perfect, but perfect in the sense of no longer a child, but developing and growing into a spiritual adult, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now verse number 18 of our text. We're getting toward the end. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Who's he talking about? The immediate believers and the apostles. From verses 9 through 19 of the 17th of John is directed to the apostles and the immediate disciples that I might send them into the world. I want to make a statement that might have a little bite to it, but give me a moment. We are His replacements. We are His replacements. If you want to ease that up a little bit, in Second Corinthians 5.20, we are His ambassadors. The Lord Jesus said in John 18.12, I am the light of the world. But you know what? He was getting ready to leave this world and he said to his disciples in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. In John 20.21, 20, as my Father hath sent me, so send I you. We are his replacements. He was sent into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And he sends us as the church into the world to preach the gospel, which is the great commission. We're his replacements. When he was on this earth, he put the light of salvation in the lives of his people. And when he went away as the light, he would be replaced by the people who bear that light. That's me and that's you if we're saved. He was sent. Now we are sent. When he came into this world, he was sent. He said, my father, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent Christ into this world. He sent him into the world. He sends us as his children today into the world. We're sent. He came with truth. We go with truth. He came in love. We go in love. Verse number 19, if it teaches anything, Christ Jesus is our representative. Give me 60 seconds. He represented us in his death when he died 
we died. He represented us in his resurrection. When he arose, we arose. He represents us in heaven. We sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He represents us in sanctification. As he is holy, so are we holy. Did you know that when Paul wrote those many epistles, 12, 13 of them, at least 14, I think, if you include Hebrews, which I don't, but that's beside the point. Those early epistles of Paul, he did not call them believers. He called them saints. I said a moment ago, 60 seconds. I got 55 left. You are a saint. You know that the same word, the same root word for sanctify, hagiazo, is the same root word for saint. We have been made saints. The moment God saved us, we were made saints in Christ Jesus. Now, I know and you know We don't live like it sometimes. And I'm sorry for that. And I ask the Lord to forgive me. And you should ask the Lord to forgive you when we don't act like saints. There's something wrong with a man who's a real Christian and he's comfortable with not acting like a saint. Got to act like saints. And he represents us in glorification. As he has been glorified, we too shall share in that glory when we see him. I'm so grateful we have one interceding for us today at the Father's right hand, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's stand, please, for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we could never, throughout eternity, thank you so much for loving us and caring for us when we were so unlovable, lovable. And Lord, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we're so thankful you did. And Heavenly Father, we ought to live like you want us to live. We ought to be different from the world. We're in this world, but God, please keep us from being like the world. Help us to be different and to maintain, Lord, that we have a different citizenship and all of these other things we've talked about and discovered in thy word today. Bless our people. Bless this church. Bless all of our churches where the word of God is upheld as truth and is preached as truth. And dear Lord, we look forward to the day when we'll be made like unto you completely at your second coming. Thank you so much for allowing us this privilege to worship you in this hour. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Brother Roger, we have a song.